Money FM 89.3, the best of prime time. In the spotlight on Money FM 89.3. Thanks for joining us on Primetime. I'm Bharati Jagdish. Now, tomorrow, leaders of the G20 nations, the world's major economies, will gather in Bali on Tuesday. That's when they'll be gathering in Bali. Indonesia for an annual summit overshadowed by the presence of Russia during its war in Ukraine. Although President Vladimir Putin has pulled out, Russia will be represented by his veteran foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov. It is the biggest gathering by the group of leaders since the start of the coronavirus pandemic and Indonesia as host state has set an agenda that focuses on the economic recovery from the pandemic, global health measures and sustainable energy. But how far are they going to get? We're talking now with Rob Hugh-Jones, editor at the BBC Partner Hub, for a look at this and a few other global headlines that he's tracking and that we should be watching as well. So, Rob, thanks for joining us. No problem. Okay, let's start off with the annual summit of the G20 nations in Bali. We've been speaking to a few analysts who say, please temper your expectations. Don't expect a lot from this summit. What do you think, Rob? No, I think they're probably right. But you have to just look at who's there. It's 19 advanced and emerging economies and the European Union. This was created after the Asian financial crisis in 99. And, um, of course, these are important countries. When you look at them collectively, it's 85% of the world's economic output, 75% of world trade, and they contain two-thirds of the global population. And in the past, what, half hour, hour or so, uh, President Biden is there. He has met with uh, President Xi Jinping of China, and it's Mr. Xi's first visit outside China, stroke Hong Kong, since uh, the pandemic began. It's Mr. Biden's first face-to-face visit with his Chinese counterpart since he came to power in Washington. So it's kind of an an important moment for those two. And I'm just looking actually at what they've said so far. Mm -hmm. In his opening statement, Mr. Biden said competition between the two countries should not lead to conflict. He said both should work together to address global issues like climate change and food insecurity. And Mr. Xi has suggested that relations between China and the U.S. are not what they should be. He said they should work uh, closely to build global security and economic development. Uh, And so there'll be lots of issues for them to discuss, Uh, not least, of course, Taiwan, which, as your listeners will definitely know, Mm. uh, China regards as as part of its territory. um, And America takes a different view of that. And there have been tensions, particularly around Nancy Pelosi's visit there uh, a few months ago, uh, that they will want to smooth out. So so it's an important moment for these two uh, leaders, the leaders of the two largest economies in the world, of course, to get to get together. But it's also an important moment for all for so many kind of bilateral meetings um, that often happen on the sides of these very big conferences. Before we get to those bilateral meetings, people, of course, have noticed how the U.S. has been reaching out to Southeast Asia, what some might call China's backyard. To what extent can the U.S. really reshape alliances in this region? Well, it can do its best. And what it can really show is that if China is, you know, flexing its muscles or promoting its power in that region, and if that unsettles some other countries, which which it has, uh, then America can show that its allies in the region, that it's there and that it's present. And that rather than sending, you know, the Secretary of State or someone further down the food chain, they are sending their their president 
to events like this, just as it, just as he went to uh, ASEAN uh, and went to COP27 and so on. It's important for the U.S. to show that it's there and it's it's you know it's in the picture. So I think him being there, I think, just sends an important, bold statement in and of itself that America is not foregoing its allies and wants uh, wants a constructive relationship with China moving forward. Let's talk about the other bilateral meetings that are expected to be happening. For one thing, I know that Rishi Sunak of the UK will be meeting Mr. Joe Biden face-to-face for the first time at the G20 on Wednesday. What are some of the issues that are expected to come up there, and what are some of the other notable bilateral meetings? Well, I mean, one of the other bilaterals that I think is quite interesting is the Australian Prime Minister, uh, new Prime Minister, meeting with Xi Jinping tomorrow. Uh, the relationship between Australia and China has not been very good uh, recently, and that will be interesting to see whether they can uh, normalize relations a bit more there. Uh, Rishi Sunak, yes, but Rishi Sunak, you know, he's very, very new to power. And uh, this week, his Chancellor Jeremy Hunt, who's the uh, in essentially his economic minister, will set out a kind of budget, if you like, looking forward at... Um, what needs to happen to public spending, what needs to happen to taxes and so on. And Rishi Sunak, you know, only went to COP27 in Egypt at the last minute, having said that he wanted to stay home and focus on these top priorities. So I suspect Rishi Sunak has really got in his sights that budget. That is the crucial thing. And uh, how do the markets respond? How do the how does the country respond? Uh, is there a favourable response? You know, this is the most important thing for Rishi Sunak in the coming days. That said, uh, very important that relationship, of course, between Britain and the United States, our principal, um, or the U.S. certainly sees us as a principal ally or one of the principal allies in Europe, and so to talk openly those two would be very important, not least about the war in Ukraine. Um, the, you know, Europe, America has sent, what, $17 billion uh, in security aid to Ukraine since the beginning of the war, or the special operation as the Russians frame it. And Britain has been very much in the forefront of activity in Europe supporting Ukraine as have some other countries or some countries in the European Union. So I suspect that will come up as well. And climate change is a big one for Mr. Biden. Both of them were at COP27. Who's to say that won't be on the agenda as well? I suspect lots of different things to discuss there. Mm. One of the major issues, of course, that was mentioned even before the summit in the last few days is the fallout from the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Now, Vladimir Putin says he's not going, but Sergei Lavrov will be there. Any headway to be expected in this regard? Well, this will be a very interesting one, I think. Uh, you're right, Mr. Putin said he would be there um, and is now not going, and Sergei Lavrov, his foreign minister, is going instead. Um, the optics would not have looked very good for Mr. Putin. His troops have just withdrawn from Kherson City, which is uh, the only provincial capital that the Russians occupied. It's in southern Ukraine. It's close to the Black Sea. It's sitting on the Dnipro River. Uh, this, was, this is an important strategic position, and the Russians have essentially given that up uh, in the past few days. So Mr. Putin would have had that to, to, to talk about or to have to face. And also he would be cold-shouldered by quite a few of these uh, leaders, uh, many of whom really do not agree with this war at all and may well be supporting Ukraine, uh, supporting the other side. So it would have been quite an embarrassing situation. I should say Mr. Putin has 
himself not been very visible in the last couple of days. Uh, it was his defense minister who made the announcement about Hassan and the Russian commander in the region. It was not Mr. Putin, despite being commander-in-chief. You know, he has distanced himself from what's going on there. That said, that war is not over in any way. The Russian forces are digging in defense lines across the Dnipro River, and uh, the Ukraine winter is about to hit. So military analysts say, well, hang on, you know, this is, they're, they're going to be frozen front, front lines effectively and far less military progress in the coming months, and we'll wait for, for a kind of spring resumption in the fighting, and that will allow Russia to reinforce its troops in the area. So, you know, we, the, the war is far from over, but this has been a very significant moment in it. And it'll be interesting to see what world leaders in, in Bali make of that. Mm. Of course, the Russia-Ukraine conflict has had ripple effects that are directly or indirectly on the summit agenda. Economic recovery from the pandemic, global health measures, the cost of living crisis, sustainable energy. So, to what extent can we expect them to at least have meaningful discussions that could lead to meaningful action later on, even though we can't expect immediate solutions at the summit itself? Well, one thing that I think is quite interesting is what the Americans have been saying in the last week or so. So if you listen to their uh, Secretary of State, no, listen to their, sorry, Joint Chief, the, the Chief of the Joint, the Head of the Joint Chiefs in the U.S. has said quite openly that maybe this is a moment for Ukraine to consider dialogue with Russia. Um, that's quite an interesting development, I think, uh, because, of course, Ukraine says, hang on, uh, Russia is committing aggressive acts in our country, uh, invaded our country, and we don't trust Mr. Putin anyway, so we're not going to have dialogue with him. And yet your principal backer is suggesting that, well, given that the winter is coming in, given that the Russians will be able to strengthen their positions and bring in reinforcements and therefore be a stronger uh, proposition by the spring, maybe this is a sensible time to be uh, holding some sort of dialogue or, or even peace talks with the Russians. Um, so it'll be very interesting to see whether we see any sort of development about that or whether Mr. Biden uh, suggests that or proposes that or hints at that or whatever. Because mm -hmm. if that happened, if there was peace or if there was some sort of agreement, um, then we would see, of course, some of these big issues, big economic issues around the world um, affected in some way positively. So let's look out for that kind of thing. Another headline-grabbing event that we should talk about, Rob, and that is the FIFA World Cup on Sunday. It's not been plain sailing at all for the host nation, Qatar. So tell us more about what the latest is in regard to all the controversies swirling around this nation. Yes. Well, on the one hand, you look at Qatar and say, small country, first country in the Middle East to hold the World Cup, football mad country, uh, population of three million, uh, flag waving, delighted to hold the tournament, can't wait for it all to happen, uh, built seven stadiums, uh, and the last of which, the one that's going to host the final, they built an entire city around that. Uh, fueled, of course, by their enormous um, income from their gas reserves and so on. But, you know, this is a very exciting time for Qatar. Uh, but on the other hand, look at it on the other hand, a very conservative country, um, a country where their uh, World Cup ambassador last week made comments about homosexuality, which is illegal in that country. And yet 
At the same time, Qatar says, we welcome all, you know, we're inclusive, we welcome all to this competition. So there's sort of, there is this sort of tension between their actions and their values and what they're doing to sort of draw in and embrace the outside world. Um, we had the former head of FIFA, the world governing body last week, Sepp Blatter, saying this is too small a country to host such a huge competition. Mm. Uh, and the big thing of all, the one that really overshadows all of it, is the treatment of migrant workers. There are some 30,000 migrant workers from countries like Bangladesh and Nepal, poor countries, uh, that have come to Qatar to help build this enormous infrastructure for the World Cup. And organizations like the International Labour Organization and Amnesty International and others say Qatar is under-reporting the number of those workers who have either been killed or have become very ill uh, because of the work that they've been asked to do in temperatures, let's not forget, that can regularly exceed 45 degrees Celsius and 50 degrees Celsius. Um, and there's a big issue about that. And that's why the Australian team came out with a video condemning some of Qatar's uh, human rights records. Uh, the Danish team, for example, the team from Denmark, they will wear black uh, to draw attention to this. Mm. Um, so I think some of, some of these issues will be seen amongst what is otherwise going to be a colourful festival and pageant of football. And be, there'll be a kind of tension between the two in this tournament. All right. I'm sure the world will be watching and processing the tension as well. Thank you so much, Rob, for joining us today. We've been speaking with Rob Hugh-Jones, editor at the BBC Partner Hub. Thanks for joining us on Primetime. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at moneyfm893.sg or download our audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O. Available on Google Play or the App Store.